welcome to another episode of Triumph and Tierras. I am your hostess, Suzanne Proxa, business strategist and coach for female entrepreneurs who are purpose-driven and looking to make a major impact in the world. This podcast is my passion and is intended to showcase women who have overcome obstacles to hopefully inspire and empower all of you to do the same. And now on with the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Triumph and Tierras. I am Suzanne Proxa, your host, and I am here today with Belkis Clark Mitchum, and she, yet another person with an amazing story. Uh, she is a spiritual life coach and motivational speaker, and she is going to talk about uh, her story that has you know, abuse and incest, depression, self-hate, um, suicide, and I think this is going to be a really great episode. So, Balkis, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, and then let's dive into your story. Oh, wow. Well, I was born on a small Caribbean island called St. Kitts, and uh, at a very young age, my parents moved to St. Martin, which is another small Caribbean island. And uh, I, so I grew up between both islands. It was school in St. Kitts, then to St. Martin, where the rest of life happened. So it was kind of back and forth a bit. And I was about uh, nine or 10 that I can recall for the first the first incident where it was uh, sexual molestation, you know, and incest. And uh, I, I never liked to wear yellow because the nightgown that I had on at that point was yellow. So it was, a, and I never made that connection until later on in life. Why is it I never quite liked that color? And uh, it, uh, so... There was a molestation and I did not know how I was supposed to deal with that. I was just a kid. What I did know is that I, I was told, oh, do not tell anyone, you know, the kind of typical stuff that you hear because, you know, he would get into a whole lot of trouble and stuff like that. And my mom, you know, and that, and all I could think about is, wow, the kind of impact it would have on my mom and everybody else around me. And eventually, as I went along and it happened again and again, I started to feel a burden, like I gotta stay quiet so that everybody else isn't impacted because this can't possibly be good. And it was really, really, really a trying time because here was someone that I looked up to, someone that I admired and respected, who was, you know, a father figure to me and here I was not knowing, is this normal? Because it wasn't the kind of stuff that I'd ever heard my family. Now, my mom talked to us about a lot of stuff, going into puberty and stuff. She, she talked to us about a lot of stuff, you know, and made herself open to discussion. But that was not something that was ever, like, brought up. So I did not, it, in you, you felt an innate fear of even venturing to say, one, you're a child, who's going to believe you? 
That's the first thing. And then when this person that you love and respect tells you don't do something, the automatic response is to not do it. So when he said don't tell, then it's don't tell. And I, as a kid, just wanted, I really, I guess like most kids, just want to be loved and appreciated. Um, but the arms that held you were also the arms that destroyed me. And that went on for a number of years. And I got, when I got to high school, by the time I was in to the second year of high school, the principal noticed that my grades have started to slip because after carrying it for so much years and trying, I, I remember at times when I was in St. Kitts for school and I am telling my mom, I need you to come home during the term. I need you to be there because I was just desperate for somebody to see me. I felt like, felt like I wasn't seen. I wasn't heard. Nobody knew the pain. And it's like, as I grew and the years went on, it's like this thing, this burden that I was carrying just keep to be sinking me and sinking me. So I was very quiet and I read a lot as my way of escape. I, I mean, I would read books and books and all kinds of books just, and it was my way to escape what I was going through. I was depressed. Um, you could hardly get a smile out of me. I did not want to have to face. And so slowly but surely, I sank deeper and deeper into depression. But as a teenager, I did not know that that was, that was what it was. And then I started to be um, hit, like hurt myself. I would take like bottles and I would hit at my hand, hit, just keep hitting, 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 hitting at my wrist, you know, just because I started, I was feeling numb inside and I wanted to connect that I could still feel that I was still real because it seemed like nobody was getting it, you know? And when my grades started to slip in high school, this principal, he was like, uh, how is it that such a brilliant student all of a sudden is doing with barely passing um, and stuff? He, he said, you know, you got this, you got one more term to pull it up by the second term, he was like, no, this can't be, we've got to do something about it. And I wasn't given a choice actually, I had to go see the counselor and, uh, but I was smart and that's not boasting. I was really smart because I figured out what it is that they wanted to hear. And so I would just tell the counselor what she wanted to hear so that everybody would leave me alone. It was a hard, lonely, lonely road. It was, I was scared, I felt burdened, I was quick to tears. I locked myself away in my room and everybody left me alone. And I just did not know how to be happy. I understood happiness in my brain on an intellectual level, but I did not know how to be happy, how to not be sad, how to not feel pain, how to not you know, feel disconnected from my own self. It's as if I was existing in a body, but I did not know how to connect the emotion to the emotions of being that person. I didn't know who I was supposed to be because I'd pretended for so long from a kid coming up into my teenagers. I'd pretend into my twenties even. I just pretended for so long. I became good at it. I was an expert at putting on the mask that everybody else wanted to hear and it became too much. I I remember there was um, a cousin of mine that I had not known about who moved to our village. And we, we kind of, you, you just meet somebody sometimes and you click. And 
we clicked and we just started talking. We did not even know we were related. We just started to talk and he was just a really, really good friend to me. And, you know, he realized that I was sad a lot and depressed and stuff like that. And he would always encourage me. And then slowly but surely, I started to share my story with him. And he was the only person that knew. And he really, you know, in my lifetime, he has been one of the few persons who understood trust and friendship. He never one time said, oh, you know, I've got to go tell this person or that person so you could get help or so this. No. He was a friend. He extended a hand in my darkest moments when I thought there was no one. He was there. And at the age of 15, I just couldn't. It's like he, for some reason, I think I couldn't get him on the phone in a really dark moment. And I was ironing clothes for school the next day for myself, my brother, and my sister. And there was a bottle of dry, dry sherry in the, on the cabinet near to where I was doing the iron and we're in the room. And everybody else was, all the other kids were outside playing and or watching TV and adults were watching TV in the TV room. And there I was on the Sunday afternoon, ironing all these clothes to, for the upcoming week because we wear uniforms to school. And I saw the sherry and because I'd read so much, I knew the impact that alcohol, I never drink, I, I'd never had a drop of alcohol before that. I was 15 years old. And I remember reading um, the story of one girl who had consumed so much alcohol at one point that she, it poisoned her and she died. And uh, I saw that, it's like subconsciously, I just started pouring large glasses. And I'm ironing, and then everything starts to get blurred. But I keep pouring large glasses and just guzzling it down, and it burned like crap. I remember that so well. It was a horrible taste. And I kept ironing, and eventually, somehow I made it through the ironing. But I distinctly remember grabbing up all the hangers with the clothes to go, ha go hang them in the closet. And I walked, boom, into the side of one of the doorways where everybody, all the adults were sitting in the living room watching TV. And they just looked up at me as if, okay, she's being her clumsy self again. But I was drunk. And I went, I remember hanging the clothes and I remember throwing myself across the bed. And when I woke up, I was in a hospital. Wow. They told me that somewhere in a subconscious state, I got up off of the bed. I remember none of this. Um, and there was one of my uncles heard me vomiting. Like he heard me go down the hallway and he heard the yoking and he came out and there was like vomit all over along the, uh, and as if I was trying to get outside. Why? I do not know. But I was trying to get outside and there was all this vomit. The thing is that it so happened that there was um, a political meeting happening in our area at the time. And the gentleman who was then to become the prime minister of St. Kitts, he was a doctor at the time and he was having holding a meeting in our village and they called him and he came and he just said, mention my name, ambulance would be here. She needs to get to the hospital immediately. My greatest regret when I woke up was that I did not die. Wow. That's, and 
when they released me from the hospital was the day before I turned 16. It was not a happy moment. More than 20 years later, I am happy I did not die. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because I worked through, I mean, I went, that was not even the end. It was, no one knew, I guess, how to help me. Well, no, I'm off. <laughs> No one, maybe they didn't know how to ask. You know how sometimes if you don't know how to maneuver a situation, you just go quiet a lot of people and hope that it works itself out. And I think that's, that's what it was. It was such a touchy subject. It was such a hurtful subject that I think everybody was just a little hands off, but it left me feeling more ashamed, more hurt as if what is wrong with me? Won't anybody love me? I went no. through, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> So at that point, you know, when this happened, did you actually then tell people your secret at that point? No, no at that point, my family found out because my cousin, who I told you we'd become really good friends, um, he, all of a sudden, they went to him because they were like attacking, like, why didn't you say something? So he had to, at that point, Say something and I think it was I, I think he felt really bad because in his mind when they called him and said I was in the hospital he thought he they said something happened to Shayla she's going to he thought that I'd be dead mm -hmm. and he, he had to then he was the one who said you know y'all need to ask her the details but he gave them just this is she's been through this and he left it at that and left them to then ask me and it was embarrassing because now i gotta sit before my family all of these people and try to relate this story it was i was petrified i was ashamed and it hurt like crap and still nobody knew how to help me i'd been through the school counselors and i just said whatever because i thought you know what, people are insincere and disingenuous and I am putting myself out there anymore to anybody just for you to not help me again. And uh, I, clung, I really clung to my cousin because he was truly, truly a stalwart, truly my fortress, my strength, my greatest support at that point point but I grew up to not blame my family because I, I figured people cannot do what they don't know how to do now we can all show love and concern so you know they got to figure that out but I learned to forgive them but it has been a long hard road to here but you know what it's also been the experience has afforded me an opportunity to do something for others that I don't know if I would have done otherwise. I'm not saying that, you know, people should go about abusing others or doing harmful things to others, but I'm saying when it happens, it happens and ain't nothing I could do to really tr change that. Um, so I learned, I, I learned to own the fact that it happened and the child that I should, I would have been just wasn't. So I had a chance as what I call rebirth. So tell me about how you got from that place where, you know, you were struggling and nobody was helping you and you were depressed and everything. How did you get from there to here? How did you start down the path of healing? 
I read a story. It was a random story in some book at school about a girl who had committed, who had tried to um, commit suicide, who had also been abused. And I could so identify with a lot of the raw emotions and the confusion that she felt. And I realized, but she said, she learned to overcome. So what I did, I went and I started to research. Reading is a good tool a lot of the times, and so is writing. I one story and a cousin telling me there's more to you. And my mom in Hawaii trying to let me know she, that I was loved. You know, it might not have been the way that I wanted it at the point, but I learned to realize she, she was trying to make me feel loved, to reassure, reassure me that I was loved. And my cousin never gave up on me and he kept, so somewhere in between when he told me, girl, how much I scared him by my, my, what I did. And when I saw how broken, how it broke my mom, I, you know, and they started telling me like, there is some, there's good in you and you can do this. You've got, you, you know, my cousin really stood with me, you know, when I think about it, Suzanne, and he kept pushing into me. And so he said, I need you to make me proud of you. You could do this. Mm. And it made me want to try. It awoken something in me like that was desperate for a life beyond the pain, a life beyond the depression, a life beyond the suicidal thoughts. And my faith, I grew up in a spiritual home. And so my faith is what also came into being. All of a sudden, I sat down one day, I will never forget. I liked to draw. And I drew a picture of a young girl lost among the, in, in a forest. And on the top, I put, God of the universe, where are you? So it was a combination of the story I read. Finally, my cousin getting through to me. My mom's effort to reassure me that I was lost. So the support system, it broke. And that suicidal attempt and the fact that I was still alive. It, and my faith. All of a sudden, I was like, okay, I could challenge God. If you say you're real and you say they're, they're quoting all the scripture all my life to me and everybody's saying, yeah, there's something good in you, show me. Show me how it's good. Then I came upon the story of the young lady and it inspired me. We should never underestimate telling our story and what it can do for someone else. You see that flame called hope? That is an engine. That is like fuel to a fire. Hope. It, to, if, it's when we do not have hope that we've got a problem. But when our hope is inspired and it is ignited, we want to live for something. We want to look for better. We, we are motivated. We want to take the step. But so those were the, the key factors that came into place. I started to write. I love to write, actually. I write a lot. I used to write a lot of poems. But I started to journal I started to put down exactly what I was feeling. And out of that, I then started to ask myself questions. What can I do to counteract 
this feeling or these thoughts that I'm, that I'm having. Then I, has, I went for counseling. And uh, so all of these were the ways in which I started, but it started with hope, with hope, with faith, and with support. So um, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing, you know, when you, when you talk about the support and the person that you had, you know, your cousin who, who helped you, but also, you know, the, the fact that sometimes what happens is people tend to ignore these situations or they don't know what to say. Um, yeah. you know, and certainly that's something that I have seen as well. It seems like when the going gets tough, everybody leaves. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And they kind of, people become uncomfortable when others are in a bad way as if somehow, I don't know if they think it's contagious, uh, you know, uh, stuff like that, or if they feel they don't know what to say, so they should say none. Sometimes just being there, I am, a, I can tell you sometimes just being there. Even when we're pushing you away, still just be there. Yes. You, you know, that, 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 that really makes a difference because it's a reminder to our subconscious. It's that the, you being there is a reminder that there's hope for better, though it feel like hell right now. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk a second about... Um, signs for you know, you you talked about your your principal that finally noticed that something was off yes there's some signs that you know parents and teachers and other people can can look for to kind of trigger them to say okay something is something is off here Oh, definitely I can give you a whole major sign <laughs> great <laughs> Sometimes it is things like falling grades. Falling grades, uh, if, if it's the person in school, uh, an absolute indicator of something is go not right. Something is not what it should be. So you really got to be paying attention. Or sometimes they become more, an individual could become more obsessive about doing well because it is trying to make, it's like add value to themselves. So they may become overly, so you would realize they might be a good student, but all of a sudden they become overly obsessive about it, which seems to be out of their nature. Something is quite off. The amount of clothes, oh my goodness. I wore um, the short tights, you know, the short, like, shorter leggings, like. Yeah. Under everything. I wore them under even pants. I never, ever, ever went without without them on. So when you see a change in behavior or the way that a person is dressing, now that could go in two extremes. They could either, either cover up a lot or they could all of a sudden, now teenage girls like the little short shorts a lot of the times and stuff like that, but it becomes excessive as if they cannot do without. That could also be an indicator. And especially if you know it's a sudden change that's happening. You wanna look at the withdrawal when your very outgoing child or young person or, you know, start all of a sudden withdrawing, you've got to pay attention to that. Sometimes I developed an eating disorder. So you want to also pay attention to stuff like that. I mean, and 
you can pay, you can notice if all of a sudden a person is either like losing a lot of weight or just stuffing their, their face all the time. You you notice these things if you're paying attention. The um the way that they react around males. I as a young son always wanting that father figure who's always seeking out the attention of males. Not necessarily to have sex, but a lot of guys seem to think that's the ultimate thing. But it was more to know that someone can love me for me. So you want to pay attention to that. I hurt myself a lot around the wrist. So a lot of the times I would wear long sleeve when it was swollen and discolored, or I would always have an excuse that I hit my hand or I fell and it sprained, so I bandaged it up. So you want to look for these behaviors that all of a sudden start going outside of the normal, you know, for your, for your child. And you want to become curious about it. You following me? Yes, definitely some, some good tips for people to, to look for. Um, yeah. Substance abuse as well is a high indicator. You know, kids will try things. Teenagers will try things, but when they start abusing it, I turn to alcohol and yeah, that can become quite an issue as well. So do you have any, um, for the audience, do you have any tips for them? You know, if this is something that, that they've gone through, um, you know, whether it be the uh, the abuse or the mm -hmm. depression. Do you have any thoughts for them that they can that they can take away? Definitely, abuse. It really. I mean, you might hear this a million times. The truth is, it truly is not your fault. An individual. I used to blame myself. The truth is, I felt like I would just lay there and let it happen. But the dynamics of the thinking of a child is that you obey adults. And even when you know it's wrong, especially if it's an adult that you trust, you kind of just give in. If your self-esteem is low, you tend to just give in. If your self-value is not there where it should be, you tend to just give in. But what you have, that's not, on, that's not necessarily a fault. You're acting based on where you're at. What you have is a predator. You have an individual who see a weakness. It's like they see a tear, a slight tear, and they decide to go and rip it open. That was their decision, especially if they've got more knowledge, more experience, uh, older than you are. No matter, they took advantage of a situation. And I need for persons to understand that it really and truly is not your fault. They made a decision to exploit you. You cannot carry the responsibility of their action for, for the rest of your life. And you sure cannot let it imprison you. So it is important to let yourself know it isn't my fault. And yes, it is also important to understand that a crappy thing happened to you. But you know what? The reality is it did. And it, 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 
it won't change. You cannot change the past, but I need somebody to know that you can definitely change your now and your future by the decisions that you make. And you might feel ashamed and you might feel like you need to cover up because, you know, everybody else has a normal life going on. And here you have this burden and this trauma to go through. But I want to share something inspiring, that, 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 that thought process I went through. When you're faced with whether depression, suicide, or, or abuse, or any trauma, any pain, any hurt, it destroys a part of you. And we, try, we spend all of our time trying to reclaim what was destroyed. My advice is to let what is destroyed stay destroyed. But from the very ashes of the destruction, you can start to rebuild. And you have an opportunity that nobody else has. Most people get just, okay, yeah, they go through their life and they call through on, I am this person or that person. You get to rebuild, remake, and restore who you are. So it is the perfect opportunity. And that is why the Phoenix is a part of my logo. Because I believe that as individuals from our ashes, we can rise. So take those ashes and you build them into the very foundation of who you are. And you use them to reinforce and you start to rebuild a new person. And you take that pain and you use it as fuel so that you can go on to do something greater. Maybe the individual you may have been, been without the pain would have been great in themselves. But pain has a way of giving us this awesomeness. It's like the more pain I have, is the more explosive I can be on the world. So I say, take your pain. Take the fact that crap happened and turn that crap into your most creative awesomeness. And you move forward. You learn to fashion it because ashes are good for something. For as a matter of fact, I know people who use ashes for beauty as a matter of fact. So I say use your ashes and reconstruct the beauty in you. But do not let the thing that depresses you, the thing that pushes you to suicidal, the person that abused you or hurt you or caused you some drama, do some trauma. Do not let them win. Do not let them get to live their life and take away yours because then they get an opportunity at two lives and you deserve your life. That would be my advice to them. Do not let them win. Take a chance on yourself. Give yourself the opportunity. There is more strength in us than we often know. And take your ashes and create your most beautiful self. That is incredibly powerful. And, uh, you know, I, you said you get to rebuild. And I think yes. that, that is, that is very important to remember. You know, you said you get to rebuild, take that pain and use it as fuel. That's you right. Let them win and you deserve your life. And I think that those are fantastic takeaways for the audience, no matter what the situation is or what they have been through. I think that that is incredibly powerful. Uh, yeah, because it is the truth. And it is what I saw I had to learn to do for myself and uh, to learn to reconnect to who, to who I am. I did not know who I was. So I thought I would sit down and meditate on what made me feel happy. 
what made me brought me joy and i would literally write it down so that i could seek out things of this nature and i started to think about what brought me sadness and what seemed to destroy me and learn to identify my triggers and i went through a process and that is what i help my, my clients to do go through the process of self-discovery and then recognizing what your prisons are the things that imprison you and what triggers those bars to come down that you want to lock yourself in away from the world and so we learn to identify triggers and, and we go through processes and different activities so that we learn to identify who we are and connect to who we are not who people say we should be or expect us to be but who truly what who we are in our core so that when we do anything we are fully engaged and in the moment so that our lives become awesome because we are so present in the little moments which actually are our great moments thank you so much for that and i think that the the audience now after listening to you i'm sure that there are many women who have been through these things who would love to know how to connect with you, how to find you online. Would you like to share that? Oh, sure. Um, persons can always check out my website, www.bellakeesclark.com, or they can find me, Clark on Instagram, Clark on Facebook. I have a Facebook group called Unleashed, and we deal with a with amazing topics. We are dealing with betrayal at the moment. So we go through topics that really matter to the, uh, to, our, to, our, to the persons in the group. We bring in other experts in the process, let people share the story and make it a great environment. So that's the group Unleashed on Facebook. They can connect with my business page, Belkis Clark, and they are on my website, www.belkisclark.com. I'm on Pinterest and Instagram as well, Belkis Clark. They can find me right there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Again, I think that this is going to be very helpful for a lot of women. And so I am very grateful to have you on the show. And thank you so much for spending a little time with me on a Sunday. That's all right. Thank you, Susan. I, I actually love what you're doing. I listened to a number of them and I went like, this is actually pretty cool. You know, I, I like that. And so it is absolutely an honor to be here and share with your audience. Thank you. Yes, this show is definitely my heart, heart and soul in this one. So that means a lot. You're welcome. Well, thank you again. And to the audience, thank you as well for hanging out for another episode. And I will see you all in the next episode. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you found some inspiration from today's episode. If you would like to find me and check me out, you can head over to SuzanneProxa.com. Or if you are a female entrepreneur who is purpose-driven, head over to my Facebook group at fempreneurs.biz. Thank you so much for listening today, and I will see you in the next episode.